All right, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. I'm going to read to you just the first four verses. Genesis 35, verses 1 through 4. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So we talked about this, we began this message last week, and we talked about God's command to Jacob to go up, to arise, to go up to Bethel and to dwell there. And so God told Jacob, arise. Remember we said that meant to arise in every sense of the word, not just to physically get up, but that he was to encourage himself. He was to arise internally. You understand what I'm saying? You can be walking around and you can be upright, but that does not necessarily mean that you have arisen. You can be walking around, but you can, in your heart, in your mind, and in your spirit, be very downcast. The command God gives to Jacob to arise is not just to physically get up on your feet, but it is to rise up spiritually, emotionally, in your heart, in your mind, and in your spirit in every way. So he says, arise, go up. So this is a direction. Go up. God calls us up. That's not contradictory with the command that we are to be humble. To be humble is to be made low. In fact, the command to go up is one that involves our humility because God says he resists the proud but gives grace. He gives more grace to the humble. And those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, he lifts up. So this command to arise, to go up, to dwell there, to go to Bethel and to dwell there, to go to the house of God and to dwell there, to make your abode, to abide in him. And so we looked at those. I want to look at the last, that last thing that God commanded Jacob. He says to dwell there in Bethel and to make an altar. Make an altar there. So this speaks of worship. We are commanded to worship. So God commands worship. And you worship whether you realize it or not. So we all worship something. So the question is, not if we are worshiping, but who. Who are you worshiping? And even if you are the hardest atheist who doesn't believe in God or the supernatural, you still worship. You worship yourself. You've made yourself an object of worship. And that's very often what we do with worship. Even when we profess faith in God, faith in Christ, we can make ourselves the object of our worship by placing demands on God or thinking that God exists for me. 
instead of realizing that God created you and God created me for his purpose and for his glory. He is always the object of worship. He is always the one that is above everything. He is always the one that demands and commands our worship. So let's talk a little bit about worship. What is worship? Well, worship is spiritual. So before worship is anything else, we need to understand that worship is spiritual. In John 4.24, Jesus says this to the woman at the well. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Our worship is spiritual because God is spirit. Now, spirit doesn't mean that it's like some mist floating around. Don't think about ghost movies. Spiritual doesn't mean it's not real. Spiritual doesn't mean it's not solid, just like this podium here is solid. Spiritual is real. Spiritual is solid. It's just not natural. It's spiritual is not temporal. It's eternal. What is spiritual lasts forever. So do you realize that your worship will last forever? What you worship now has eternal consequences because your worship is spiritual. So our worship belongs to God. And the question concerning worship needs to begin with who our worship is directed toward. So anyone or anything other than God, if, if that is the object of our worship, anything or anyone other than God. Well, who is God? God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Though so there's a lot of people who profess faith in God, but the question again is, well, who is, who is your definition of God? And the way that we are to understand and the way that God has been defined to us is through Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 14, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Remember his disciples said, Jesus is getting ready to go away. And he says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And his disciples say to him, show us the Father. If you'll just show us the Father, Jesus, it'll be sufficient. It'll be enough. And the response Jesus gave to his disciples was this, when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So who is this God that commands our worship? It is the God of the Bible as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That is who we are commanded to worship. Not some generic God. Not some God who is just one of many ways. Or not some God who has many different paths to him. Jesus was very clear, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the worship God commands is the worship of a God who is defined and revealed to us in Jesus Christ. He is the object of our worship. And if we worship anyone or anything else, if we put anyone or anything above that worship, 
then we've begun with the wrong answer. So the the first question has to begin with who is the object of our worship? And if it's anyone other than the God of the Bible as revealed to us in Jesus Christ, then we've begun our worship with the wrong answer. So worship is spiritual. Worship is an attitude. Worship involves our heart, our mind, our soul. Worship implies why we do what we do. Worship is an action. It's physical. We clap. We lift our hands. We lift our voices. That's easy. What we do in here is easily and obviously defined as worship. But worship doesn't stop here. Worship doesn't end with the lifting of our hands or the the lifting of our voices and our hearts to the Lord as a worship team leads us in worship or as you sit there and listen to the word of God being preached or taught. That's not the end of our worship. Worship continues everywhere we go. Why? Because you are, remember, you are Bethel. You are the house of God. You are the lively stones being built up. You are the household of God, the oikos of God. And so where you go, the house goes. Where you go, the presence of God goes because God dwells in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So your worship doesn't start here and it doesn't end here. Your worship is part of your life. It's in everything you do. It's it's how you help a flood victim, a disaster victim. It's how you bear witness to those around you with the love of Christ or a witness of the gospel through your words or through your deeds, that's your worship. How you love your wife or how you love your husband or how you love your children, that's your worship. How you command your household. Remember, God commanded Jacob. And then we're fixing to see how Jacob commanded his household. How you command your household is worship. Fathers, how you command your household. Husbands, how you command your household, that's worship. Wives, how you respond, that's worship. Children, how you obey your parents, that's worship. Do you see that worship is a lifestyle? It's all-encompassing. It's not two hours on a Sunday morning. It is the totality of your life, and you will be engaged in worship for eternity. The only question is, who will be the object of that worship? For those who will spend eternity in hell, bitter and angry and biting and lashing out against God, guess who the object of their worship is? They will be the object of their own worship. And that worship will be manifest in anger and bitterness and lashing out toward God because God gave to them what they deserved. What's going to be your worship in heaven? Well, I think when we get to heaven, our worship is going to look something like this. We're going to realize that we did not get what we deserved, but instead we received the grace of God. So any crown we get, and we see this picture in the book of Revelation, any crown we get, we're going to cast it at the feet of Jesus because in our worship of God, we're going to understand, we're going to know that we did not get what we deserved, but we received God's grace and God's love. 
And God in his grace and God in his love has allowed us to live in his presence forever, to experience the fullness of joy and the pleasures at his right hand forevermore. And not in any way, shape, or form because we deserved it somehow, but because he is graceful. And so we will worship him and we will give glory to him because worship is due him and glory is due him. So worship is a lifestyle. Worship is eternal. That's really what it means when we say worship is spiritual. It's eternal. It defines who we are. Worship is sacrificial. Bethel, the house of God, is where our life is consumed by His life. When we're, when we're in His presence worshiping we're going to understand this is not about our life. This is about his life because what he has given to us is his life. This is what you must come to understand while you walk on this earth. You'll, you'll get it in heaven, but do you get it now? How you get that right now, how you understand that and how you comprehend that now is going to determine how you walk out your life on this earth. Are you walking out your life Consumed with yourself, fulfilling and doing the things for yourself? Or are you consumed with Him? Have you come to the house of God and has your life been consumed by His life? Bethel marks a place of renewal where the passing of the old is giving way to the new. Do you realize that even false worship is sacrificial? Whatever is your God, whatever you idolize, whatever you give your life to, it, it could be something as destructive as drugs or alcohol. It could be something as seemingly good as, as doing good works. I, doing this disaster relief, I've met a lot of people, and I know for a fact that their ability to do good works is directly tied to how they understand themselves being in relationship with God. In other words, the more good works they do, the more confident they feel they are in their relationship with God because God is measuring their righteousness based on their good works. So flood victims are an opportunity to do lots of good works and gain lots of brownie points with God. Listen, I'll take those people all day long if they're helping flood victims, but, but listen, if I have an opportunity to explain to them that your good works are really not buying you any brownie points with God, God doesn't love you because you're doing good works. God loves you because he's graceful and he's loving. And in his grace, he's given you the ability to share that love with others but that's not gaining you more love or more favor. Now, it's true. There are rewards. And you live a sacrificial life to serve others. There are rewards with that. But that doesn't mean God loves you more than somebody else. And so people make those things even idols. Church busyness and church Good works can become an idol to you. I love people to be committed and 
to be about doing the things in the church, that's good. But we need to make sure people are doing those things for the right reason. That the reason we do this is because of our worship of God, because of our love for God, not because we think we're gaining some extra favor from God. Because we don't deserve favor from God. We don't earn favor from God. God gives us his favor by his grace. And so even false worship can be sacrificial. You can consume your time, your talents, and your treasure in false worship. Thinking that it's gaining you something that it's really not. Only true worship of the true and living God can give you true life. And that's what God has given to us in Jesus. He's given us life. So this command to arise, to go, to dwell, and to worship, this was given to Jacob. And Jacob comes to his household and he commands his household and he tells them, we're going to arise, we're going to go up. We're going to Bethel. We're going to dwell there and we're going to worship God there. And so Jacob commanded his household to get ready to worship. God did not leave Jacob to himself. God was with Jacob. God does not leave us to ourselves. God is with us and God commands our worship. So just as Jacob commanded his household, Jesus commands his household. So when God gave the command to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel, Jacob gave a command to his household to prepare themselves to go up to the house of God. Now I want you to go, I want, I want to read to you Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews pins these words recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. It says, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. So he says, you are the house, you are the household of God. Jacob commanded his household, whose household are we? Well, the Bible says we are God's household. We are the household of Jesus Christ. So this picture of Jacob commanding his household, remember the Old Testament is full of these types and shadows that reveal Christ to us. So this picture of Jacob commanding his household to get ready to go up and to worship God is a type and a shadow of Jesus who commands his own house, who we are, the writer of Hebrews says, and Jacob commands or Jesus commands that his household do exactly what Jacob's did. Except the difference is this, Jacob's was a shadow, it was a picture of what was to come. Jesus is the substance, and so we are the substance. We represent Jacob's family and the household that Jacob commanded. We are the substance of that. We are, in reality, the household of Jesus. We are his house, and he commands his house to worship God. 
And so when God gave the command to Jacob to arise and to go to Bethel, Jacob gave a command to his household to prepare themselves to go up to the house of God. And in that command, he says to them, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Put away your idols, in other words. Jesus commands us to do the very same thing, to put away our idols. So when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus? He said, this is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love God. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then in John 13, 35, Jesus says to his disciples, as he's getting ready to be crucified, they're in the garden, they're they're right there. And Jesus is teaching them about the Holy Spirit coming. He's telling them, I'm going to go away. In John 13, 35, while all this is transpiring, just literally hours before the arrest of Jesus, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another even as I have loved you. That's not inconsistent. That's not contradictory to the first and the greatest commandment. In fact, it's, it, it's perfectly compatible. And then we have John's letter, 1 John, where John writes a whole letter and explains how this all dovetails together, how it all fits together, that you can't say you love God and hate your brother. You can't say you love God And hate your neighbor. In fact, the way that we show that we do love God is by loving our neighbor. It's exactly what Jesus said when he says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. That fits perfectly with love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And to love God with all that you have is to worship God with all that you have. Because here's the reality, church. What you love is what you worship. You can say one thing, but the reality is this. What you love is what you worship. What you love most is what you will worship most. If you love yourself most, you will worship yourself most. And that will be manifest in many different ways. It will come out of your mouth. It will come out of your actions. It will be revealed in your life, in your lifestyle. Because remember, worship is not two hours on a Sunday morning. Worship is your lifestyle. And your lifestyle will reveal who you love most and therefore who you worship. And so this is why Jacob commanded his household the way he did. He said, we are getting ready to go up to Bethel. We will dwell there. We will build an altar there. And we will worship God. Put away your idols. In other words, whatever you love, if you've got something, anything that you love more than God, that you look to more than God, put it away. Because we are going to the house of God. Now, after the cross, after the ascension, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, here's the reality. We're not just going up to Bethel. 
We are Bethel. God has poured his spirit into us. We are a house of worship. And what you enthrone on your heart as the object of your greatest love and affection is the object of worship that has been set into the holy of holies in this temple that you have become. The most sacred and the most guarded place, what have you placed there? Who resides there? Is it the God of the scripture as revealed to us in Jesus Christ? Is it Christ that sits enthroned on your heart? Is it Christ that is enthroned there in the most holy and guarded place of your heart? Or is there someone else or something else? What is behind the veil? We can make the outside look really good. We can make it look like a temple of God. We can make it sound like a temple of God. But the real question is, what is in its most inner and sacred of places? See, God in his grace and mercy will expose that in you. And when he exposes that, it may be painful. But he exposes it because he loves you. And the pain is not meant to harm you. The pain comes because God has in his grace and in his love for you said, I refuse to let you keep that hidden behind that veil. I refuse to allow you to enthrone that in my temple and make that the object of your worship when I command that I must be that object of worship. So Jacob commanded his household, put away your idols. It goes to the very heart of your worship. God will show you what your idols are if you will ask him, if you are willing to hear and to obey. If you don't want to know what they are, don't ask him. But here's here's the reality of a graceful God. Even if you don't ask him, see, this isn't the don't ask, don't tell policy. Because you say, okay, God, I'll make a deal with you. I won't ask and you don't tell and we'll be good, right? God says, nope, that's not the way it works. I want you to ask. I want you to tell. But God says, I'm going to tell you right now, if you're my child, I will not leave you to yourself. I will not leave you alone. I will not forsake you. This is the promise of God throughout the scripture. But then when God comes to us and he refuses to leave us alone, on one hand we pray, God, help me. But when he comes and helps us the way that he knows we must be helped, we say, wait, God, that's not how I wanted you to help me. Now, I wasn't wanting that, God. That's too painful. No, I just wanted this over here. God says, yeah, but see, that's not what you really needed. That's what you thought you needed. This is what you need. So, God, I don't want that. That's too painful. God says, I don't really care what you want. You're my child and I love you. And so I'm going to do what's best for you, ultimately. Parents, don't you do that with your children? I mean, you ever seen little kids taken out and spanked or taken into the office? You know, we've got little Woody in our kitchen. They're on the rack with the little sad face drawn on the spoon. That's Woody. He's got a sad face. And, you know, when Woody comes out, it's not a good thing. Why? Because we love our children and we love our grandchildren. We don't leave them to themselves. 
They want to go out and play in the water. But you know, guess what? The water's too deep. And if we just let them to themselves out there, they could stumble and they could die. Even though they really want to be out there by themselves and they really think it's safe because they don't understand the danger. Do you realize that's the perfect picture of who we are with God? We think we know. We think we've got it all under control. But God is saying, you don't really understand the danger. And because I love you, I'm going to expose this. And it's going to be painful, but it's going to save you. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to save his children. So idols or idolatry in our life take lots of forms. Some are subtle, some are obvious. But God commands that we put away our idols. God commands that we put away anything and everything that robs him of worship. So this is the question. What in your life is robbing God of the worship that is due his name? Is it something as obvious as alcohol or drugs or or an addiction to pornography or Whatever it is, these are real things, people. Or, or maybe you're on the other side and you, you work really hard. Maybe you're a workaholic and you're married to your job. Or maybe, moms, you're living vicariously through your children and you've made their lives an idol so that you can do through them what you never were able to do yourself. That's idolatry. What have you made more important in your life than God? Those are the things that are idols. God commands that we put them away and put him in his rightful place. And the rightful place of God is first. It's at the head. It's above all. We're commanded to do that personally and corporately. We have to ask not just personally, Jeff, what have you put above God in your life. But we have to ask this corporately, Christ fellowship, what have we put above God? What has taken place and more importance than God himself? Do I fear people more than I fear God? Do you fear people more than you feel, fear God? Do you want a church that is rooted and grounded in truth that may cost us in the culture? Or do we just want to pretend like it's all going to be okay? Let's just make everybody happy. And if we just make everybody happy, then it'll all work out in the end. The only problem with that is I just don't see that anywhere in the scripture. I don't. So we're commanded to put our idols away, to ask for his grace, to empower you, that you would walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, that you would walk in obedience, the obedience that his grace will supply. And not allow anything to keep you from arising and going up to worship God. 
to abide in him, to find your life in him. So Jacob commands his household. Jesus commands his household, put away your idols. And then Jacob says this, purify yourselves, come out of your defilement. Now this was no doubt in response to what had just happened. And they had just been the slaughter of these people in the city of Shechem. And the people were defiled with blood. The men were defiled by blood and by death. And Jacob says, come out of your defilement, purify yourself. We're going to the house of God. Jesus said, Moses said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say to you, if you even say in your heart to your brother, Raka, you fool, you have committed murder. Who among us is not guilty of committing murder based on the standard revealed to us in the word of God and by the word of God, Jesus Christ himself? Well, the answer is we're all guilty. We're all defiled by murder, by adultery, by by covetousness. I mean, we've broken all the commandments. We're defiled. And God commands, Jesus commands his house, come out of your defilement. Purify yourself. Now for the Israelites, this was marked by these ritual washings and preparations and waiting certain numbers of days. But when we are called out of our defilement, when we're called to purify ourselves, we need to understand there's only one way that we can be purified. And it's not by washing ourselves in water. It's not by waiting seven days or 30 days or 40 days. The only way that we can be purified is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The cleansing blood is the only thing that can purify us. Only in Christ can we be purified. Only by his blood through faith in the finished work of Christ at the cross can we be purified. But we are not any less called out. You say, oh, well, Jesus purified me, so I'm going to keep living in my defilement. It's okay, Jesus purified me, so I'm going to keep doing those things. No. It's not your coming out of those things that purifies you. It's the fact that Jesus has purified you by faith. That's why you need to come out of those things, because you are purified. We're called to come out because God purifies us in Christ. And our coming out does not purify us, but we come out because we are purified by the blood of Jesus and because he has now made a way out where there was no way. Do you realize that before Christ came, there was no way out of your defilement? All you had, the best thing you had was was some animal you could sacrifice, take it to the priest, sprinkle the blood, and, and, and slaughter it on, on the altar and your sin was covered, but you weren't truly purified in the sense that God demanded. It was just that in his grace, he looked past your defilement. He covered your defilement with the blood of an animal. And that was a temporary purification. That's why there had to be continuous sacrifice in the tabernacle and in the temple. That's why Jacob, when he built an altar, he sacrificed an animal over because Jacob, even though there was not a tabernacle yet, Jacob understood 
that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. Worship demands a sacrifice. It demands a death. It demands a putting away. So God commands us to put away our idols. He commands us to be purified, to come out of our defilement. And Christ has made a way for us to come out. So before Christ, you were not capable of coming out. Now in Christ, you are more than able to come out. What will you do? Come out of your defilement in Jesus Christ or remain in your defilement? That doesn't mean that we won't struggle. It doesn't mean that we won't fall, that we won't fail. But it does mean that the struggle and the failures are no longer excuses for us to stay in our defilement. Your identity is not based on your defilement. Your identity is based on Jesus Christ. Your identity is not based on your past sin. Your identity is based on a new creation in Jesus Christ. Your identity is not who you used to be. Your identity is who you are now in Christ. And in Christ, God makes a way for you to come out of your defilement. He makes a way for you to escape your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Come out of the old into the new through faith in Jesus Christ. We're commanded to do this by His grace. And by His grace, we are able, we are empowered to come out. So Jacob commanded his household, Purify yourself. Come out of your defilement. Jesus commands us, purify yourself. How do we do that? By trusting in his shed blood. That's how you purify yourself. You come and you say, God, I cannot purify myself. The only purity I have is in the blood of Jesus. And faith in that purifying blood is exactly how you purify yourself. It's exactly how you come out of your defilement and then Jacob says change your clothes change your sin stained soiled garments and put on new clothes Jesus commands his household to do the very same thing to put on those things that mark your renewal the outward manifestation should mark your inward transformation we are commanded to change our clothes to put off the old and to put on the new we don't come out of the mud to make our clothes white we are lifted out of the mud and we are given brand new white garments it's not our coming out of the mud that makes us clean it is our being lifted out of the mud by the grace of God and God providing for us in Jesus Christ the garments new, fresh, and clean that we are now able to put on through faith in Jesus. We're going to stop there today and we're going to pick up there next week and we're going to look at uh, a scripture in the New Testament. We're going to look at Paul's letter to the Colossians where he talks about putting off 
and putting on. And this is what Jacob commanded his household to do. It is what Christ commands us to do. So Christ commands us to cast away our idols. Christ commands us to come out of our defilement, to see ourselves purified in his blood. And next week we're going to talk about how Christ commands us to put on the new. To put off the old and put on the new. Amen? Let's all stand. So I want to challenge you to think about your worship. I want to challenge you to think about who and what you have made the object of your worship. And in doing that, I'm challenging you to think about the idols in your life. It's not that we can't have other things. It's not that we can't enjoy life. We should enjoy life, I believe, more than any people on earth. I believe believers, Christians, should enjoy life and experience joy and happiness and fun and excitement more than anybody else. But we also understand there is real pain and there is real suffering. There's real trial. There's real temptation. There are real valleys we walk through. There are real floods we walk through. There is real fire that we walk through. But the promise of God is that I'm with you. And the fire will not burn you and the flood will not consume you. And even in the midst of the fire and even in the midst of the flood, there is joy to be had. Why? Because he is our joy. There is peace to be found. Why? Because he is our peace. So I want to challenge you today to consider your worship, to consider those things that may be idols in your life. And and understanding that whatever is an idol in your life, if it is anything other than God, that is a defilement. I want to challenge you to ask God to show you how to walk out of your defilement. How to cast those things away, put those things away, and walk free from those. And the first step to that is to make God the object of your worship. Beyond yourself and beyond anything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. And Lord, you have commanded us to worship you. God, you command our worship. There is no one, there is no thing that is to be worshipped other than you. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for our idolatry. That you would forgive us for defiling ourselves by placing things and even ourselves in a position of worship above you. That we have made ourselves objects of our own worship by living our lives consumed with ourselves and for ourselves. God, I pray that you would help us to see that this is not a choice of whether to live a joyless life in you or to live for ourselves and find our own joys and our own pleasures in ourselves.
Lord, that's not the choice. Lord, help us by your grace to find you and to see you and to know you as our greatest joy. Help us, God, to have eyes that see. Heal us of our blindness and our deafness, God. Give us ears to hear. Give us legs and feet and bodies to walk into your glorious joy, into your very presence through faith in Jesus Christ. Help us, God, see that there is a joy in you that that is so much greater than anything the world can provide for us. Help us, Father, in your grace to find that, to live that, to know that. Help us, Lord, to be a people that would bring glory and honor to your name. Help us, Lord, to be a church and to be individuals that live for your glory. That, Lord, we would be motivated for your glory to give witness, Lord, to take people by the hand, to bring them to the house of God, to share with them the gospel, to impart to them the same glory, the same joy that we have found in Jesus Christ, not because we're afraid of going to hell, but because we have found the greatest joy that the world could ever know in Jesus Christ. Help us to be a people consumed by your life. Lord, help us to be that people so consumed that all that can be seen and heard is Christ. Father, we pray this for your glory, Lord. I pray, God, that you would put it on the hearts of people here today to be selfless. Again, Lord, not because they feel sorry for somebody, not just because they pity someone, but I pray, God, for your glory, we would be selfless in reaching out and helping flood victims, that we would see a window of grace given to us and an opportunity to minister the love and the the peace of Jesus Christ to those less fortunate. Lord, help us to sacrifice our time, our schedules, to take advantage of whether it's training or opportunities to work and to volunteer. I pray, God, that you would put it upon the hearts of your people to step up and to show forth your love and your glory in this time of need in our community. We ask this, Lord, that you would, above all, be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.